Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Today's special PCOS expert guest is Ebony Cremieri. As a qualified nutritionist and dietitian, fertility and IVF nutrition expert, she's here to do what health experts should do, focus on health science more so than health facts. Because looking after your hormone health is more than simply doing what looks good on social media. It's about tailoring your diet and lifestyle based on your body and your goals. With over 12 years of experience as a dietitian, Ebony's worked with hundreds of women to help them achieve their health goals. So she's the perfect guest to talk through all things PCOS in today's episode. You can find out more about Ebony on her website, which is projectnutrition.com.au or follow her on Instagram at hormone.nutrition. Now let's dive into today's expert episode on PCOS with Ebony. Today's episode is monitored by Garmin. If you're sick of charging your fitness smartwatch every night, Garmin gives you up to 11 days of battery life on a single charge. So if you want a smartwatch that stays on your wrist and not on your charger, head to garmin.com.au to find out more and use my code LEANNE10 on any venue SQ2 for a limited time only. Now here's our podcast. Well, welcome, Ebony, to the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast. It's a real treat to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm looking forward to our chat. Yeah, well, I always love to start off by hearing a little bit about our guests in terms of like your background and where you've come from and kind of how you landed in this area of PCOS. So do you want to tell us, our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I've been working as a dietitian now for over 12 years, but I haven't always worked in the PCOS fertility space. So Mm -hmm. my early career, I worked as a clinical hospital dietitian. I did some work in food service and in private practice more as a general practitioner. So working with a lot of chronic disease, um, type 2 diabetes, um, cholesterol, high lipids. And it wasn't until I went through my own struggles with infertility. Mm -hmm. It was a very long road to falling pregnant with my son. And we had a lot of issues with recurrent miscarriages. And it wasn't until then that I really started delving into the world of fertility nutrition. And when it came around to trying for another baby, I was sort of like, there's no way I'm going to go through all of that again and do it, do it the same way. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'm going to take a different approach and I'm going to start with looking at nutrition because that's my area of expertise. It's going to be the easiest thing for me to focus on first. Mm-hmm. And my mind was just blown with, you know, how important nutrition is in terms of optimizing fertility and pregnancy outcomes. So that's where it all really started for me. And I really just wanted to share that information with other people. And when I was eight months pregnant, luckily, my journey to falling pregnant with my daughter was much shorter and luckily didn't go through the heartache of recurrent miscarriages again. But when I was eight months pregnant with her, I started to open, I decided to open my own practice. And (laughs) (laughs) great timing, I know, not ideal timing. But I was just so um, passionate and driven to to work in this area. I thought now's a good enough time. And 
the more I started working with fertility clients, the more I started seeing clients with PCOS. Mm -hmm. And when I was upskilling in this area and I was looking at what information was out there to support these clients, I was just horrified at what was online and what people were having to wade through and the information they were trying to navigate because there's just so much bad, inaccurate stuff out there mm. and I thought look if this is confusing me as a dietitian, I can't even imagine how confusing it must be for for people without any nutrition training so I thought right we've got to do better for these for these patients for these clients and I really just went all in with upskilling around PCOS and now I would say you know 80 to 90 percent of the clients I work with have PCOS mm. um, some are trying to conceive others are not they're just trying to optimize their health and manage their condition but in a snapshot, that's how I ended up working in the area of PCOS nutrition. Love it. And I guess we've got to take it right back to basics. So for our listeners at home, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will themselves have PCOS, but I'm sure that we all know someone or we've heard of somebody with this condition as well. So taking it right back to basics, from a medical standpoint, what is PCOS and how do we diagnose it? Yeah, so PCOS is quite a uh, complex hormonal condition. And historically, PCOS has often been thought of as a reproductive condition. And I'm sure many people listening in might resonate with this. You know, when they were diagnosed maybe 10 years ago, they were told to, you know, go on the pill, go away, come back when they want to have a baby because PCOS affects your ability to to fall pregnant. Unfortunately, we know that this isn't the case. PCOS affects your whole body. It's not just a reproductive condition. It can affect your metabolic health. It can affect your psychological health. And it does affect your reproductive health as well. So it's a condition that we really need to be proactively managing as soon as it's diagnosed. And I guess that's one of the biggest misconceptions. It's not just a reproductive condition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And talking about that diagnostic criteria, um, it's something that we need a medical professional to do, isn't it? It's not something we can just have a simple blood test and we'll go, right, yep, you've got it. It really is around a set criteria, isn't it? That's exactly right. So because PCOS is a syndrome, it requires a diagnosis of exclusion. So your doctor has to rule out all of these other medical conditions before they can actually look at a PCOS diagnosis. And in order to be diagnosed with PCOS, your your doctor has to follow a certain criteria called the Rotterdam criteria, and you need to meet two of the three criteria. And I'll just run through those really quickly with you now. So the first criteria is a regular or absent menstrual cycles. Mm -hmm. The second criteria is hyperandrogenism. So androgens are our male hormones, so hormones like testosterone. And when they're elevated, they can cause symptoms like acne, excess hair growth, hair fall. So your doctor can diagnose hyperandrogenism with a blood test or they can visually assess you and look for those physical symptoms. And then finally is polycystic ovaries on ultrasound. But I guess that's where it gets a little bit complicated because you don't technically need to have polycystic ovaries in order to be diagnosed with PCOS. And there is a really big push to have the name of the condition changed because it does get a little bit confusing. Polycystic ovaries are actually really, really common, especially in young females. Just because you have polycystic ovaries doesn't mean you have polycystic ovary syndrome. They're two different things. 
Yeah, okay, and that's where that you've got to have at least two of those criteria comes into play. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, okay. So what are the main symptoms that you would see in your clinic or say you were just seeing a, a regular person for, um, I don't know, weight loss or fertility issues? What would be some red flags to then send them back to their doctors because you're thinking, oh, like there's a potential that you might have PCOS. What are the biggest, I guess, symptoms that you see as a clinician? Yeah, so PCOS really does present very different for different people. But some of the key red flags that I'm looking out for for someone if they may potentially have insulin resistance, first of all, is irregular cycles or issues with their menstrual cycle. That is a really common concern Mm -hmm. for a large number of people with PCOS. The second big red flag is often difficulties losing weight or unexplained weight gain. So you haven't changed anything in your diet, but your weight is just continuing to track up, or you've been trying all of these different dietary changes and you're not seeing the scales budge at all. Mm -hmm. That can also be another red flag. From a fertility context, difficulties conceiving, so difficulties falling pregnant, Mm -hmm. but also miscarriage is another um, instance where I'd be looking at PCOS and insulin resistance in a little bit more detail. And then obviously the very physical symptoms, so acne, excess hair growth, um, hair fall, and often it's that balding on the top of the head in that male pattern baldness um, type fashion. Those really physical symptoms um, are what I would also be keeping an eye out for and referring back to the GP for further investigations. Mm-hmm. And when we say sort of irregular periods, are we talking like, I mean, I know quote unquote average is kind of, you know, what, 26 to sort of 32 day cycle. Yeah. Are we looking at like largely outside of that or could it just be, you know, you skip a cycle every now and then? Like, is it pretty definitive in terms of when you say in a regular cycle someone's like oh I get my cycle once every you know like eight to twelve weeks or something yeah and it will depend on the country you're from as to what these criteria are but typically it's if you're having eight or less menstrual cycles a year Mm -hmm. or if your cycles are less than 21 days apart or more than 35 days apart is what we would typically consider um, irregular. But if you notice any major changes in your menstrual cycle that have occurred for more than one or two cycles, Mm. definitely worth going and mentioning it to your doctor. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, in a a standard person, not sort of following your pregnancy or like winning of breastfeeding or anything like that. I remember after I had my bub and then went through the breastfeeding journey, I was like, when's my period going to come back? And then I got one, then didn't get another one for like eight weeks time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also um, for younger, um, for younger people, it's, you need to be waiting at least three years after your first period before you can start looking at a PCOS diagnosis too. So there needs to be a bit of time there because your body takes a bit of time to get a sense of regularity. Yeah, yeah. What's the average sort of age of diagnosis for PCOS? Is it something that we're seeing typically younger and younger or is it more, you know, women in their 30s because of that link to fertility as well? Yeah, in the past it's definitely been um, in women who are proactively, you know, trying to conceive, trying to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. But we know that we can make such a big impact if we can diagnose early um, for our younger women. So Mm -hmm. there has been a big push to try and screen and pick up PCOS at a younger age because the earlier we can pick it up, especially when those metabolic complications are there as well, like the insulin resistance, this can really reduce the risk of those future health complications um, if we can get on top of it early. Yeah, okay. And I guess I've read a little bit about like the different types of PCOS, but honestly, I was struggling to find 
I would say like any kind of reputable sources online. Like there are a lot of kind of blogs, a lot of alternative practitioners talking about it. Are there different types of PCOS? Like I was kind of reading that there are three or four different types. Is that something with, I guess, a bit of research and science behind it or is that more just people and some theories? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're 100% right. With um, the PCOS types, it's definitely popular on social media and there are a lot of big Instagram accounts that talk about these PCOS types. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, there is very, very, well, there is no research or scientific literature to support these PCOS types. Interesting. The truth is they're, they're a pretty clever marketing strategy Um, And in my opinion, it's a complete oversimplification of a very complex condition. People don't fit neatly into these boxes or types. Mm -hmm. Everyone presents so different. And the way your PCOS presents can change across your lifespan as well. So what affects you when you're an adolescent may not affect you as you get older as well. So it's definitely if you if you've been looking at those PCOS types and are feeling really confused and going well hang on I've got symptoms from this type and I've got symptoms from that type and Mm -hmm. who knows what type I'm I'm meant to fit in that's normal because it's not um, a diagnostic criteria it's not backed by science and it just causes more confusion I think so take it with a grain of salt and don't spend too much time worrying about what PCOS type you are. In the end, there are two really key driving factors that are responsible for almost all of the symptoms someone will experience with PCOS, and that's insulin resistance and chronic inflammation. Mm -hmm. So if you can work on targeting both of those, that's the best thing that you can do to help your PCOS. So in a nutshell, don't spend money on a different program or a meal plan that targets your specific type of PCOS, right? Spend that money on an accredited practicing dietitian that's going to give you some one-on-one personalized advice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we are all so complex and unique and we all have different lifestyles and unique needs and the way that your PCOS present will be different from the person next to you. So you can't expect those cookie-cutter generic type programs to fit all of your needs and concerns. Mm -hmm. And that's where a dietitian who specializes in PCOS will be so helpful for you because they'll really be able to tailor that advice to you and what's going to work for your unique needs. Yeah, amazing. And I guess speaking about those evidence-based guidelines, there are some wonderful guidelines available for the management of PCOS. Can you, I guess, chat us through those guidelines a little bit and what they sort of recommend from a management perspective? Yeah, so we're really lucky to have these wonderful guidelines that were developed by Monash University. So Monash University is based here in Australia and they were developed and published or they were published in 2018. So they are getting a little bit older now, but they still are an amazing source of information. If you're a health professional and you work with PCOS clients, then you need to be across these um, guidelines. They're fantastic. But basically, these guidelines were really developed to help um, provide better care to people with PCOS. And they really focus on the assessment, so diagnosing PCOS Mm -hmm. and also the management of PCOS. And the guidelines break up um, their recommendations into a number of different areas. So they look at nutrition, lifestyle and behavioural interventions and then they also look at the medical interventions, so medications um, and other treatment options from a medical perspective. And then finally they have a section on fertility as well. 
So they're really comprehensive and I guess they highlight the importance of that multidisciplinary approach when looking at PCOS. Mm -hmm. So diet, lifestyle and medical management is really going to be the best approach for most people with PCOS. And I love that lifestyle component because it's it's not all or shouldn't all be about, you know, take some medication and change your diet. The lifestyle factors have such a big impact as well, don't they? Absolutely. And that's one of the key, I guess, recommendations from these guidelines is that every single person who is diagnosed with PCOS should be um, provided with good quality information and support around making diet and lifestyle changes. So realistically, you know, every, if you've been diagnosed with PCOS, you really need to be looking at your diet and your lifestyle and getting some professional support around that to help reduce your symptoms, but also to reduce the risk of future health complications as well. And in the guidelines, what are some lifestyle strategies that they tend to focus on or that they recommend will give us kind of the biggest bang for our buck or make the biggest impact for somebody with PCOS? So with the um, nutrition strategies, because with lifestyle, they're broken into three key areas. So exercise, nutrition, diet, and um, behavioral strategies as well. Mm -hmm. So from a nutrition perspective, one really key thing that's come out of these guidelines and that is shown in the literature as well. I mean, there is some more research that's been done since these guidelines were, were published. But when it comes to weight management and PCOS, and that is a big concern for a lot of people with PCOS, mm-hmm. is weight loss and achieving a healthy weight for them. When we look at different dietary strategies to help with weight loss, there is no one dietary pattern that has been shown to be superior in terms of weight loss. So there are a number of different dietary interventions that have all been shown to be effective. The thing is, and where it gets, you know, this is where a dietitian can really come in handy, is that we can basically look at the person that's sitting in front of us and match up which one of those dietary interventions is going to be best suited for that person and then personalize that dietary intervention for their unique lifestyle and needs. Mm-hmm. So this is where seeing a dietitian can be really, really helpful because there are so many options out there that are effective. It's about finding which option is going to be best for you. And we can do that really, really quickly. So we're thinking things like, you know, for some people, intermittent fasting might work really well. For some people, low carb diet, maybe carbohydrate modification, maybe just the standard, you know, calorie deficit overall and matching the portions better to the clients. Yeah. So with the, um, when we look at all the research around weight management and PCOS, the following diets have all been shown to be effective. Mediterranean diet, keto diet, low GI diet, the dietary approaches to stop hypertension diet. Mm -hmm. There are a number of different dietary patterns that have all shown benefit, which is great because we have so many tools in our toolbox to help clients. It's not just this one dietary approach that we need to apply to everyone. We have heaps and heaps of options up our sleeves. So if something's not working for someone, we can draw on lots of other interventions to help as well. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And from an exercise perspective, is it just movement is best or do the guidelines point towards a certain type of exercise or a certain amount or time each week that we should be doing it? Yeah, so with exercise guidelines, they're in line with the general recommendations around um, cardiovascular exercise. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to lose weight, obviously we need more exercise than just the general recommendations. But with exercise, I always encourage my clients because I'm not trained in, in exercise. I'm not an exercise professional. So I always encourage clients to go see an exercise physiologist 
or a really good trainer who can give them some personalized advice around exercise because it can really play a big role in weight management and also symptom reduction because mm-hmm. we do know certain types of exercise, for example, yoga can actually be really beneficial for lowering androgens. So if you've got acne and excess hair growth and those sort of symptoms are really troublesome for you, then maybe incorporating some yoga into your regime might be beneficial for you. Cardiovascular exercise pretty much helps with the work, so it's one that is always preferable. And then we have weight-bearing exercise too, which is super important for helping with that metabolic profile, helping with weight loss. And yeah, it's a really important one to incorporate as well. Mm, Particularly with the component of insulin resistance as well. Getting that kind of metabolic burn up through building a little bit of lean muscle is so important, isn't it? Definitely, definitely. And um, a lot of my clients and I absolutely love that weight training Mm -hmm. and women in general, we tend to not do enough of that. So it has a number of other benefits for our health as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Just in terms of keeping our bones and our muscles strong as we get a little bit older as well. Definitely. I'm a big advocate for weight training in any age for all women. Yes. (laughs) Let's take a quick healthy break and a quick breather. If you have a smartwatch, check your stats. If you had a Garmin, you'd be able to check your health stats for up to 11 days on one charge. It's a smartwatch that spends more time on your wrist and less time on charge. So if you're tired of charging your fitness smartwatch every night, get a Garmin. Wearing your smartwatch for longer could give you a more complete picture of your health. A Garmin can help you manage your stress levels with relaxation reminders and short breathing activities when your watch detects that you're stressed. It can monitor your energy levels throughout the day so you can find the best times for activity and rest. And it also has a hydration tracking tool that allows you to log your daily fluid intake. Now you can do more on a single charge. See which Garmin suits you at garmin.com.au and use my code LEANNE10 on any venue SQ2 for a limited time only. Now, let's get back to our show. Now, you mentioned um, behavior modification. I find that a really interesting strategy. Now, are we talking like mindful eating or like what sort of behavior modification are we talking, um, you know, meditation? What does the research show us when it comes to PCOS is quite effective from a behavioral standpoint? Yeah, so the guidelines list a whole heap of different behavioural modifications that you can look at in terms of managing your PCOS. So things like mindful eating and slow eating, goal setting, um, really looking at problem solving is one that they um, mention in the guidelines. And as a clinician, this is something that I do quite frequently with my clients, you know, helping clients to troubleshoot and problem solve when things don't go to plan, how are we going to overcome that, you know, and building skills and confidence around that. Also, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy as well with the work of a psychologist. There are a number of different strategies that you can once again utilize that can be effective in helping you to be consistent with making those diet and lifestyle changes. Once again, it's just matching up what's going to work best for the individual. Mm, Interesting. And then from a supplement perspective, do they really go into supplements or is it more just the medical management and the medications that are effective for PCOS? So they talk about supplements in the guidelines. Once again, we've had more studies and more meta-analyses come out around inositol in particular and the Mm -hmm. benefits of inositol 
for PCOS, uh, but they do touch on inositol in the guidelines, but they do still consider it in the guidelines as a complementary therapy yeah, um, yeah. and that the evidence is still limited in terms of making it a routine recommendation for people with PCOS. Mm-hmm. But really interestingly with the guidelines overall, the quality of the evidence is deemed to be low to medium and that's across the board, medically, diet and lifestyle, and it just shows how much more research we need in this area for such a common condition. There's just huge gaps in what we know about PCOS. So it's an area that we definitely need more um, research and evidence on to provide the best care to our patients. And in your clinic with, you mentioned you're seeing largely, um, you know, letters with PCOS. Would you say that you tend to use inositol more than you would not? Like, is it something that you regularly use within your clinic? Yeah, I really like inositol. Obviously, any supplements, we want to make sure that it's prescribed by a health professional. So please don't go out and start taking supplements without chatting to your doctor or your dietitian. But with inositol, it can be really effective for PCOS because it really targets that insulin resistance. It helps the cells in your body utilize glucose better. So Mm -hmm. it can help to support a more regular cycle. It can help to lower those androgens, improve acne and excess facial hair. It can improve fertility. So there are a number of benefits um, of inositol. It's much better tolerated than some of the medications Mm -hmm. like metformin. So for someone who is really struggling with those digestive side effects from metformin and just not tolerating that medication, mm. it's really worth talking to your health professional about trialing trial inositol because there are some newer reviews looking at the literature around metformin versus inositol and they're proving to be, uh, inositol is proving to be just as efficacious as metformin. Yeah. So it's definitely one to talk to your doctor about and I've had some great results with my clients um, using inositol. So Definitely a supplement to have on your radar and to talk more about with your health professional. Definitely. I've had a couple of clients with PCOS as well and the ones that I've tried it on have done really, really well on it. And like you, they haven't done so well on metformin. They've got really bad nausea, like they've just had a lot of symptoms. But everyone I've tried it on told they've done really well from a symptom management perspective, which is awesome, isn't it? That we've got an alternative, I guess, option that might be for lack of a better word, a little bit more natural than something like metformin. (laughs) Yeah, and there's actually some research to show that in the fertility space, using the two together can be even more beneficial. So if, you know, metformin is like you are tolerating, adding in that inositol can also be beneficial. So there are lots of ways that we can utilise it. And as you said, it's so nice to have an option available to people who aren't tolerating that medication that's making them feel really rotten and unwell. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned in the fertility space they work really well in combination. Would that just be only for fertility or would you say that's you know for most people with PCOS, particularly if they've got that level of insulin resistance and the weight, you know, the weight's really hard to come off. They put on a bulk of weight over the last few years and they're really struggling to get it off. I mean that's one of the biggest symptoms of insulin resistance, isn't it? So would they go hand in hand for just the average person with PCOS? PCOS or really only if we're looking at that fertility component? Potentially, yes. The study I was talking about was looking more at fertility outcomes, so looking at menstrual cycle regular regularity, egg quality, those sorts of things. So okay. it's um, but potentially, yes, it, it could have a, a benefit 
using both if you're tolerating them at foreman. Yeah, interesting. Okay. And then we've mentioned weight a couple of times. So it is important to note that not everybody with PCOS struggles with their weight. You know, I've had a couple of clients who are very, very lean. You know, they're marathon runners. Really the biggest symptoms for them were a bit of pain and, as you mentioned, those, um, you know, the acne and those other symptoms like maybe excessive facial hair, that sort of thing. So they haven't struggled with the weight I guess, gain component, but as we know, a lot of our clients and our listeners do. So I guess what is the difficulty with losing weight with PCOS? Or help our listeners understand a little bit more at home why somebody with PCOS might struggle to lose weight, unlike, I guess, somebody else without PCOS. Yeah, so there are a number of factors that really drive that weight gain in PCOS. And the biggest one is that unmanaged insulin resistance. So insulin really causes our body to store fat. And when you have high levels of insulin constantly circulating in your body, your body's going to want to hold on to body fat no matter what you do. So it really is that frustrating cycle of no matter what you try, your body just wants to hold on to that body weight. We also see with um, insulin resistance is those really strong cravings, particularly for carbohydrate-based foods and sweet foods, purely Mm -hmm. because the cells in your muscle are just not getting that glucose to function effectively and you're you're hungry, your cells need that energy. Mm -hmm. So it really drives those cravings and also fatigue. So once again, because the cells aren't getting that glucose efficiently, then that can make you really tired, really fatigued. And when you're feeling tired and fatigued, that just is an extra barrier to, um, you know, maybe preparing dinner. You know, you're more likely to grab those quick and easy convenience options on the go. So it's this sort of perfect storm of um, symptoms that are really driving that um, weight gain. The other thing that we see it with PCOS um, is this di- dysregulation of appetite hormones. Mm-hmm. So we know that people with PCOS are more likely to have high levels of ghrelin. So that's um, an appetite a hormone that stimulates your appetite. And once again, it also promotes fat storage. So studies show that people with PCOS have higher baseline amounts of ghrelin compared to people without PCOS. Mm. And with um, other uh, appetite hormones like leptin, which actually tell you when you've had enough to eat and they act as an appetite suppressant, these um, appetite hormones are lower in PCOS. So it's this complete imbalance and mismatch of of where your appetite hormones should be. Mm -hmm. And Fortunately, though, dietary changes can help with that. So the low GI diet can actually help with that appetite hormone dysregulation. So there are things that we can do to help with that, Mm -hmm. but that's another reason why um, weight gain can be a challenge with PCOS. And another thing that I don't think is spoken about enough is poor sleep. Okay, yeah. So people with PCOS are more likely to have poorer sleep and more likely to struggle with sleep conditions like sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. We know that if you have a poor night's sleep, you're more likely to eat more the next day. It affects those appetite hormones and it also affects your blood sugar levels. So it can worsen that insulin resistance. So really focusing on sleep is another area that I like to address because it is something that I see a lot of people struggling with, with PCOS. Yeah. And just linking back to the sleep apnea, because that's something we haven't really talked about a lot on the podcast. And I remember I had a friend who you would look at them and they weren't 
overweight. Like you think, like I think a lot of people link, you know, sleep apnea with, you know, um, middle-aged men who have these big beer bellies and they snore all night long. Yeah. But it is something that we're seeing a lot in younger clients. And I like to say, uh, I guess the biggest sort of red flag for me would someone saying to me, Leanne, I'm getting, you know, seven, eight, nine hours sleep. I'm going to bed, I'm sleeping through the night, but I'm waking up and I'm feeling exhausted or I feel like I'm being hit by a bus. And so that is obviously something to do with the quality of the sleep and where that sleep apnea comes in when they're constantly waking throughout the night, but not really realizing it. So for me, that's like a big red flag to go and get some further testing. If you feel like you're getting, or you should be getting a good quality sleep, but you're still waking up feeling exhausted or like you're having an afternoon nap each day, like that's not normal. Like I've had clients before that have felt like they need to nap every day. And I just say to them, that's not normal. Um, You know, obviously if you're only getting four hours sleep a night or you've got a newborn baby, maybe, but for the average adult, if you're getting, you know, those six, seven, eight hours each night and you still feel like you need to nap, that's definitely something to go and talk to your doctor about, isn't it? Yep. And most people that I speak to with PCOS don't know that sleep apnea, they're at a higher risk of sleep apnea with with PCOS. So not only is it important for weight management, it's important for your mental health, it's important for future health um, issues and chronic conditions. So if you're not sleeping well, like you said, if you're waking up after a full eight-hour sleep feeling like you've slept for an hour, please see your doctor about that one. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be overweight and you don't have to snore to actually have something like sleep apnea. I think that's the biggest misconception, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, we've talked about, I guess, some of the nutrition and the lifestyle intervention strategies for PCOS, which I love. A big area of mine and a big focus of mine is really around gut health. Mm. Are there any links between PCOS and gut health? Like is it, there are a lot of conditions, particularly those autoimmune type conditions where we can actually link that back to this disruption with the gut microbiome. Is there any research or science to show that there's that link between poor gut health and a PCOS diagnosis or not so much? Yeah, this is a really, really interesting and emerging area in PCOS research. And there was a small study that looked at the gut microbiome of people with PCOS and it found that people with PCOS were more likely to have an altered gut microbiome Mm -hmm. compared to people without the condition. So we know that if you have PCOS, you're more likely to have a less diverse gut bacteria. And we know that for people who have higher androgens, so higher testosterone, this dysbiosis is even greater. So it seems to be really linked with that hormone dysfunction, so those high levels of of androgens, which I find fascinating. But we just don't have the next piece of the puzzle as to, you know, what do we do with that information in practice? How can we modify diets in people with PCOS to potentially improve that gut microbiome? So watch this space. That's a really interesting area of research. We know that as well that people with PCOS are more likely to struggle with IBS, Mm -hmm. so they're more likely to be diagnosed with IBS, and they're more likely to present with um, constipation and bloating. So they're the two symptoms that are are more commonly reported in PCOS patients with IBS. Mm -hmm. And we don't know the exact mechanism for this yet, so the research is still really unclear but it's likely due to those hormone imbalances impacting on the gut microbiome. So that's definitely likely to have a role. Mm -hmm. But also people with PCOS are more likely to struggle with stress and anxiety. So that gut-brain connection um, in terms Mm -hmm. of gut symptoms is also likely coming into play as well. 
But the other thing that I really like to focus on with gut health, and it's something that I address with all of my clients with PCOS, because PCOS is a chronic inflammatory condition. So we know that people with PCOS have underlying levels of inflammation, Mm -hmm. and that's regardless of body size. Mm -hmm. So the research shows that weight can exacerbate this chronic inflammation, but even people with PCOS who aren't struggling with their weight have this chronic underlying inflammation. Mm -hmm. And because we know that having a healthy gut microbiome can actually help with um, lowering inflammation in the body, it's a really key focus area for a lot of my clients to really support a nice healthy gut microbiome to really target that chronic inflammation. I love that. And you mentioned one of the particular styles of dietary patterns that have been shown to be effective for PCOS is something like a Mediterranean diet approach, Mm. which we do know there are links to reducing inflammation with that style of approach. That's a lovely one for people to, I guess, start off with just from a general health perspective, which is well, maybe beneficial for PCOS, maybe beneficial for weight management, maybe beneficial for inflammation. Yep. And Mediterranean diet, and I don't use it with every single one of my clients, but for the majority of clients, it is such a powerful, effective way of eating. And we know from the research that it's one of the easier um, dietary patterns to adhere to and stick to. And I see that in my practice as well, just because it includes so many different foods. Um, It's got such a good variety of foods. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So it's usually a go-to for me. And then what we do, what I do with my clients is we use that as the foundation, Mm -hmm. that Mediterranean eating pattern. And then we modify carbohydrate based on someone's level of insulin resistance. And that's where we can get really great results in terms of menstrual cycle regularity, Mm -hmm. weight loss, and overall symptom management is really making sure that someone is getting the right amount of carbs for their needs. So getting their carbohydrate load correct in combination with eating that good quality low GI diet. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned depending on their level of insulin resistance, is there a way that you test for that or is it just how it presents in your clinic? Like you try a few different dietary strategies. If the weight's not coming off, then, you know, and also if it's a lot of abdominal fat storage, would you make the assumption that it's more severe insulin resistance versus someone you try a few things and the weight comes off quite quickly, we would think perhaps there's none there or maybe a very mild level. Is it a subjective thing for you or do you send them off for further tests? Yeah, so... Because I've been working with clients with PCOS for quite a while, I'm pretty good at asking, you know, picking up on insulin resistance quite quickly, Mm. visual, um, and just their history in terms of what they've tried with their diet. Mm -hmm. But the guidelines actually recommend for anyone that's struggling with their weight with PCOS that they have an oral glucose tolerance test done. I like to get insulin done alongside it because Mm -hmm. that will pick up more mild insulin resistance Mm because we can see what's actually happening after a high glucose load. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I'll often refer back to the doctor to have an oral glucose tolerance test done because sometimes it's even though I can tell from looking at someone's diet and looking at their history and their weight that it's very likely that they do have insulin resistance, sometimes it's nice to see that on paper and it's a good measure so we can then measure again three six twelve months time and see the progress in terms of what's happening with someone's insulin levels and their glucose levels so it's definitely something that I get most of my clients to have done if they've been diagnosed with PCOS Mm -hmm. if they're trying to have a baby 100% 
oral glucose tolerance test Mm -hmm. um, done from a fertility perspective. Wonderful. And if any listeners at home are wondering if you would like to know a little bit more information about insulin resistance, I actually had Susie Burrell on the podcast just a couple of episodes ago talking about insulin resistance. So that links in really nicely. If you've come to listen to this one, I think head back and listen to the one on insulin resistance because we recommended a lot more specific dietary strategies as well, which is great. And 75 to 95% of people with PCOS will have insulin resistance. So it is so important to really understand what it is and how it's affecting your PCOS symptoms. Because as I said, for most people, it is really the key driver of most of the PCOS symptoms you'll experience. When you have high circulating insulin in the body, it will actually tell your ovaries to start producing more androgens, so more of that testosterone. Mm -hmm. And that's what shuts off ovulation. So if you can really target that insulin level, insulin resistance, get those insulin levels down, mm-hmm. that can be so effective in supporting a more regular menstrual cycle as well as managing your weight as well. Yeah, and they're big numbers. What do you say, 75 to 95% of people? Yeah. Wow, yeah. huge numbers. Yeah, and there's a lot of debate around the fact that insulin resistance really is a hallmark feature mm-hmm. of PCOS. PCOS. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm conscious that we're running out of time and you've given us so much gold today. <laughs> um, I did have one last question for you really around low GI diets because as a dietitian, like that's something that we all understand, but I get for somebody listening in at home, they may have heard of that, but not actually know what that means. So can we talk quickly about the glycemic index of food and what like a low GI diet would mean or would look like for somebody with PCOS? Yeah, so low glycemic index diets are another really easy to implement type of dietary pattern. And basically glycemic index is a measure of how quickly or slowly some uh, carbohydrate-based food digests in your body and how quickly or slowly it raises your blood glucose levels or your blood sugar levels. So we want to choose low glycemic index foods wherever possible. So they're things like whole grains, beans, legumes, lentils, Greek yogurt, high fiber cereals, fruit, starchy vegetables like sweet potato and corn. These are all going to digest nice and slowly and cause a more gradual rise in blood sugar levels. When we have a more gradual rise in blood sugar levels, this means our insulin levels won't spike as much after eating. But low glycemic index diets are just one piece of the puzzle. Yes, it's really important to choose those really good quality carbohydrates, those low GI carbohydrates, but you need to eat them in the amounts that are right for you and your level of insulin resistance. So if you're having, you know, choosing really good quality carbs, so you might be having like whole grain bread, good quality pasta, but you're having that in two bigger portion sizes, that's still going to spike your blood sugar levels. It's Mm. still going to spike your insulin levels. And that's not going to be great for your PCOS symptoms. So we really need to make sure you're getting the right amount of carbs, Mm -hmm. spreading them out nice and evenly across the day and choosing those good quality low GI carbohydrates wherever possible. I love that. All right, final message for our listeners today. If you had one thing that you think benefits people with PCOS the most, or if they feel very overwhelmed, perhaps they've just been diagnosed and they're feeling very overwhelmed, they think, oh my goodness, I've got to do all of these things. I just don't know where to start. I'm too overwhelmed. I won't do anything. What is the one thing that you would suggest would give them the biggest kind of bang for their buck as a really great starting place? Yep. So from a nutrition and lifestyle perspective, 
I really, really encourage you to find a practitioner, a dietitian, a credit practicing dietitian who can support you in making these dietary changes. But if you're in the midst of trying to find someone to support you, one of the best things that you can go away and start doing straight away is to really try to get more plant-based foods at each of your meals. Plant-based foods are a really good source of fiber and phytonutrients that really target that insulin resistance and chronic inflammation. They're full of antioxidants that lower oxidative stress and they lower um, those inflammatory markers. They fill you up. So if you're struggling with your appetite, if you're struggling with your weight, they're really going to help to keep you feeling full as part of a well-balanced meal. But if that's just one little thing that you can start doing straight away, really try to add one or two extra plant-based foods to each of your meals um, if you can. I love that. And they also positively impact our gut microbiome as well, which we love from a hormone and also a weight loss perspective as well. Absolutely. Yep. So many benefits for adding more plant foods into your diet and a really, really important area to focus on. Absolutely. With or without PCOS, I really think for everybody, we're all going to reap the benefits of eating more plant-based foods. And that's whole foods as well. You know, if we're going to go and have plant-based hot dogs and plant-based burgers every night, we're just not going to get the same benefit as if it was in a whole food form, such as beans and legumes and rolled oats and nuts and seeds. So definitely that whole food focus is so important, isn't it? Definitely. Even just adding half a cup of beans every second day to your diet, will have huge health benefits for your PCOS. And that's a really simple thing that you can go away and just start doing straight away. So give that one a try. Add it to your um, soups or your spaghetti bolognese or your salads. Just your tinned beans, tinned legumes, give them a good rinse and throw them through. Super, super simple, cheap and easy. Mm, Great from a budget perspective as well. (laughs) Wonderful. All right, Ebony, well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on today. Can you please let our listeners know where we can follow you on social media? You've got some great Instagram pages and also um, your website and where people can get in contact with you to make an appointment. Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at hormone.nutrition and I share lots of PCOS and fertility tips over there. You can also head to my website, which is projectnutrition.com.au and all the information about me and my online practice is located on the website. So you can head there to find out more information. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. No worries. Thank you for having me.